For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup sea foam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on sea foam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to SteelDealers.com. Now... Here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. While the 2021 drought continues to punish the West, cool and wet conditions have made this summer a mushroom bonanza for the Northeast, especially with hurricane-slash-tropical depression Henry, or Henri, however you want to go, a couple weeks ago, and the end of Hurricane Ida this past week. Along with the bumper crop mushrooms has come a corresponding spike in mushroom-related poisonings. The Northern New England Poison Control Center has seen a near 50% increase compared to a typical year. Dr. Karen Simone, director of the center, told New Hampshire Public Radio the majority of these cases involve people who didn't even try to identify the mushroom, they just saw it on their lawn, thought it looked interesting, and brought it in and ate it. I do love that adventuresome spirit. I'm sure we have like-minded ancestors to thank, but only a few. Don't eat lawn mushrooms, kids. There is nothing like catching sight of a promising shape through the underbrush and having it resolve into a bona fide morel or hen of the woods, but if you're just starting out, join a mushroom hunting group to learn from an expert. If you are that type of adventuresome, good news. Mushroom clubs are thick on the ground, at least one in every state, six different clubs in Pennsylvania alone, you are almost guaranteed to meet some interesting people by joining up. Some notable mushroom hunters from the past include the following. Ralph Philip Haynes Jr., CEO of the Haynes Underwear Company and chairman of the National Endowment of the Arts, who bought 14,353 acres of woodland with his own money and donated them to North Carolina in 1975 to create Stone Mountain State Park. That sounds like some comfortable support in, you know, the world of conservation. Ellen Trueblood and her husband Ted 
the legendary writer for Field and Stream and other publications who helped establish the Idaho Wildlife Federation and organize the campaign to stop construction of the Nez Perce Dam on the Snake River, saving a key salmon migration route in the process is another mushroom hunter, and John Cage, avant-garde composer whose piece 433 involves musicians not playing their instruments for 4 minutes and 33 seconds so that audiences hear the ambient noises in the room. I'm just going to suppose that the relationship between this piece and Cage's mushroom hunting is not coincidental. You know what I'm saying? It's exploratory. Anyway, this week, we got venom, politics, and fire. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, friends and neighbors, has been one wild ride. And like the Robert Earl Keane song, the road goes on forever and the party never ends. As I mentioned, I prepped hard to go deep into the Wahi wilderness. I'll tell you that was possibly the understatement of the century. Never in my life have I driven so far on a dirt road in one direction, only to unload another smaller, much more comfortable vehicle, the uh, Defender Series Can-Am, and continue that drive further in a singular direction than I have ever driven one of those things. I prefer the single cab with the six-foot bed, tons of storage, great for sleeping also. Anyway, I got on the road late and ended up hitting the trail with the Can-Am, put 27 miles on trails uncomfortable for the savviest of dirt bike riders in order to meet up with my buddies who had the sheep tag. They'd already gotten there and packed in ahead of me, so Snort and I were glassing for sheep the next morning after spending the night, trying to be helpful, when a rifle shot cracks off somewhere in the canyons below. I have a radio and a satellite transmitter called a somewhere device. I ping off a text on the transmitter to a friend who maybe heard what happened before I could and send out a call on the radio. Kind of brokenhearted at this point that I missed the sheep hunt. Happy for my friend, but kind of sad to miss out. So I really didn't want to miss out on the pack out. Snort, on the other hand, was elated at the fact that we'd traveled so far to spend the night and be woken up by her favorite thing, a gunshot. Unfortunately, a return call on the radio said, ah, that was a miss. And friends and neighbors, for Snort and I, that was our last really good morning. Which brings us to the Snort Report. About 11 a.m. last Tuesday, Snort found or intercepted a western rattlesnake, who instead of buzzing its tail, struck and connected with the leading edge of her left or, let's say, driver's side ear. We were about a mile and a half from the Can-Am, returning from our beautiful morning hike, in which we had successfully found sheep, using lambs, but very fun, had that feeling of some accomplishment in the morning, and, you know, it's important out there in the big and vast Oahe country. That fun, accomplished feeling was replaced with a dread-filled triage mindset. What are our options? My long-lapsed backcountry medicine courses said keep the victim cool, calm, and keep the bite area below the heart. As Snort, who had yelped and sprinted to heal at my side, stared up, looking at me like what the hell happened, a singular bright red drop of blood started to form on her ear, and I could just think, Nothing but, well, little girl, we are screwed. Older dogs of my past, I could tell to sit, and they would sit until I returned, but Snort is not quite there yet in her training, so the keep calm option was out. So we casually, as we could, walked to the Can-Am. 
I thought about how the now 11 a.m. sun was getting very hot and the keep the victim cool option would soon be out, as well as the fact that hanging her by her tail to keep the bite area below her heart was firmly in the dark humor category and just not an option. Then, Snort started to lag behind. One step, three, five. I stopped at a tall sagebrush, dropped my pack on top of it. Snort sauntered up with a look of confusion, an already swelling ear dripping with blood. She laid down on her own in the shade. As she went down, so did my heart, and I just thought, man, this is not good. I dropped the rest of my gear, filled up a packable bowl with water, and told my dog to stay, then turned and ran my fastest mile time in years back to the buggy. At that point, I knew that three things were the most likely, and this was judging from the fast reaction I'd seen to the venom. One, she would be stumbling up the road to me, working more venom through her body. Two, she would wander off to find the spot she wanted to die in, and I would have to track her down which is not impossible, but terrifying. And three, she would be dead where I left her. I had my money on number two as I drove as responsibly as possible her direction. Much to my surprise, Snort was still in her place. Her head was up and greeted by the cloud of dust following the stopping of the buggy. Even more surprisingly, she got up and walked to the open door and stepped up on the seat. Found sheep and the dog is snake bit. I said to my companions. They helped me sort my gear from theirs and we briefly discussed what was going to happen or what should. My friend said, well, you have to try. That's the right thing to do. And you know labs don't die from rattlesnakes. Drive safe, but haul ass, but drive safe. Three miles into the 27, I blow a sidewall on the front right tire. No spare. Snort is lying on an old bath mat It is soaked in the cold water from the cooler, and she's draped in a pack towel I also soaked with cold water from the cooler. It's an incredibly stressful spot. I elect to just keep driving on the deflated tire and rim. Screw it, right? Have to get out somehow if you aren't smart enough to navigate hazards and don't bring a spare tire. I had sent a message to a friend on that Anywhere device who's a retired vet, and he responded with, Give her Benadryl. So I'm digging through my first aid kit while driving, trying not to blow any more tires, and amazed at how crappy the trail is. Can't believe I've got us in such a hole. I came up with one 25 milligram Benadryl type pill. The vet says 100 milligrams would be better, and lots of water. And well, this is all we got, Doc. Now how's that for a cliffhanger? At the risk of this overshadowing the research-based news, I'm going to make the Snort Report a two-parter. Maybe even a ten-parter, I don't know. I'll fill you in next week. Spoiler alert, the story is ongoing. So, you know, she made it. Moving on to the politics desk. New administrations are often measured by what they accomplish in the first 100 days, and here we are, 242 days into the Biden administration but we still thought it would be a good idea to back up and take a look at Biden's conservation record so far and compare it to Trump's out of the gate back in 2017. First, we're going to look at key appointments and nominations. As the saying goes, personnel equals policy. At the Department of the Interior, Trump's first pick, Ryan Zinke, was at the helm, shrinking national monuments, a highly controversial move which brought the crazies out of the woodwork, 
a monument designation, monuments themselves are all individuals. What is true in regards to rules and regulations on one monument, which could be, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's house, is not necessarily true for another monument, like uh, Grand Staircase Escalante. What we were concerned with was, of course, how will this affect our hunting and fishing? While monument designations can bring more general recreationists to an area which is generally seen as a negative for those of us who like to hunt fish, a monument designation can also protect valuable hunting ground from further development. Yes, you can hunt on some monuments, other monuments you cannot. Like I say, monuments are individuals. Reduced monument sizes led to an increase in available land leases. If you remember, part of Zinke's platform was framed as quote-unquote energy dominance. That is extracting enough oil and gas from public lands to become more independent of foreign energy producers. Energy production is one extremely important priority for the Department of the Interior and public land. In fact, if you ever go have a meeting at the Department of the Interior, there are drill bits being used as decor all over the meeting rooms. In 2018, Interior put leases for over 4 million acres of public land up for sale at the federal minimum of $2 an acre, way below market value. The effort was so haphazard that many of the lease sales had no bidders at all, and almost all of them got hung up in protracted legal battles. After narrowly avoiding the greater sage-grouse being added to the endangered species list, the department's offering of bargain basement land leases and sage-grouse habitat was, uh, risky. Trump's next pick, David Bernhardt, out of Colorado, was considerably better considering the amount of pro-hunting and public land legislation that passed dealing directly with lands overseen by Interior. For example, Trump expanded access on our refuge system by 2.3 million acres during Bernhardt's watch. Biden's pick for Interior, Deb Holland of New Mexico, is an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe, the first Native American to head the department, and, as she puts it, a 35th generation New Mexican. Interior oversees the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which makes this very relevant. By her own admission, Holland is not an expert when it comes to federal lands or conservation. However, her deputy, Tommy Boudreau, has served at Interior for a total of seven years, with posts overseeing energy and natural resource management. People I talk to in the conservation community trust Boudreaux and say that Holland is sharp. So far, the most significant action of Interior under Holland has been a pause on new oil and gas leases on public lands, though that move was blocked by a federal judge. Holland has stated that there won't be an outright ban on new leases, and the existing 26 million leased acres remain as is. But so far, it's safe to say that new extraction will be dramatically reduced compared to the previous administrations. Interior also expanded hunting and fishing access on national wildlife refuges back in May, adding 2.1 million acres for hunters and anglers to enjoy. The next Biden nomination that's getting the most attention is head of the Bureau of Land Management, Tracy Stone Manning, currently senior policy advisor at the National Wildlife Federation. Manning is apparently an avid hunter and angler, and she's had a career full of practical and effective conservation action, brokering agreements between conservationists and industry lefties and righties. However, the headlines have been focused on a case from 1989, when as a graduate student at the University of Montana, Stone Manning typed and sent a letter to federal officials saying that members of the radical environmental group 
Earth First had driven metal spikes into trees in Idaho's Clearwater National Forest. Chainsaw chains can break into multiple pieces when they hit metal spikes, threatening injury or death to loggers using them. The same happens when saw blades at lumber mills come into contact with these spikes if they make it to that point. Anyway, eventually, Stone Manning testified against Earth First members in exchange for immunity. But we can't look away from the fact that she was part of an effort to achieve political ends using the threat of violence. But certain aspects of the opposition to Stone Manning have gone overboard, in my opinion. Firstly, opponents are now claiming Earth First's most extremist claims as Stone Manning's current beliefs, which is, you know, ridiculous. To be clear, ridiculous on the fact that college was a real long time ago. For instance, let's say you were way into the band Slayer right out of college. By the time you're 50, you likely don't blast the album Rain in Blood at every opportunity. That part of college does not define you in the present. Despite hanging on to that really cool t-shirt, you are a different person. You are 19 to 23-ish, no judgment. I have health insurance now, I have changed. Secondly, the tree spiking incident has been well known for years and was aired when Stone Manning was nominated to work for Governor Bullock here in Montana. No one mentioned tree spiking during the recent BLM hearings when the senators could have debated whether it disqualified her then. Instead, the incident was brought up after the hearing. This strategy seems designed not to actually scuttle her nomination, but rather to be used to thwart any progress the BLM could make with her at the helm, which would be a disaster. The BLM has a list a mile long that has to be taken care of as soon as possible. Droughts, invasive species, feral horses, on and on, and if opponents paralyze the Bureau with this issue, we all lose. Manning's nomination potentially brings too much controversy to an already controversial office. It seems certain she will be confirmed. If so, we need to hold her feet to the fire to run the BLM well. Trump's initial pick for BLM was no pick at all. The post remained open from 2017 through 19, with four different acting directors over that time. Without strong leadership, even more extractive leases on public land were granted well under market value. Eventually, Trump tapped William Perry Pendley, who longtime listeners to this show will remember as WPP. Yeah, you know me. The anti-public land activist, who was never confirmed and moved the BLM office to Colorado, Pendley didn't really manage to accomplish that much on his anti-public land agenda, but doing nothing had consequences. Dozens of valuable people left the BLM during his time, and the list of problems that BLM was supposed to address just kept getting longer. BLM could be whittled down to controversy from Team Biden, we'll see where it goes, and starving the agency from Team Trump. There's much more to cover on the Trump-Biden conservation head-to-head, so next time we'll bring you part two. Part two may make you happy, or may make you angry, but you'll have to wait and hear. Remember, no matter who is at the helm, it is up to you to write in, call, and petition to make sure your interests are represented. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL 
to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver, off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Moving on to the wildfire desk. What does wildlife do in a wildfire? Forest fires are raging across the United States in what has become an annual source of anxiety for Americans out west. Here in Bozeman, the smoke in the air is a daily reminder of the 93-some-odd active fires currently consuming over 2.5 million acres of land from Montana to California. If you want to check on what's going on in regards to fire, check out www.nifc.gov forward slash fire information. Human residents aren't the only ones who have to deal with the ever-expanding conflagrations. How's that for a $5 word? It means big fire. Forest critters must also adapt to the smoke and the heat, but they don't have squadrons of brave firefighters to defend their homes or heat-resistant materials to build their nests. They do have millions of years of evolution, which isn't something to sneeze at. The intensity and quantity of wildfires may be increasing with climate change, but animals have been dealing with these fires for much longer than humans have. Their adaptations allow most to survive, and there are no documented cases of a wildfire wiping out an entire population or species. That doesn't mean everything is hunky-dory when a wildfire sweeps through town. Young, sick, and old animals are at risk of being caught up in the blaze, and fires often claim otherwise healthy large animals like deer and bear. Fish can also be affected, depending on the extent of the fire. 
water chemistry, turbidity, and runoff levels can kill some fish and force others to find more suitable habitat. But most animals do all right. Birds can just fly away, small animals can burrow underground, or hide in fire-resistant shelters like rocks. Brian Wolfer, the game program manager for Oregon Fish and Wildlife, told me that while especially intense or fast-moving fires can be dangerous, most large-game animals like deer and elk will survive your typical fire. They often simply run away and circle back around after the fire has run its course. They can also hide out in rivers and lakes. Sometimes, animals even use fires to their advantage. Predators like bears and raccoons have been observed hunting animals trying to escape the flames, and wolves return to burned-out areas to scavenge anything that didn't run away. If you recall the wildfires in Australia, studies found that gps feral cats moved into burn areas to, you know, clean up the ones that couldn't make it. Most animals can escape an advancing wall of fire, but they can't do much to restore their habitat once it's been burned up. Species that depend on mature forest habitat can have a tough time after a fire has burned all the old trees. Animals, like the northern spotted owl, are especially at risk. Last year, the Labor Day wildfires in Oregon pushed the species even closer to extinction. Spotted owls depend on old-growth temperate rainforests, but last year's intense fires burned up even this fire-resistant landscape. Other animals thrive following a fire, including most game species. Deer, elk, and bear numbers can actually increase in the wake of a wildfire because these animals depend on young forest habitat rather than large old trees. A heavily shaded understory can reduce forage quality, but fires reset shrub and grass communities, add nutrients to the ground, and open the canopy to allow more sunlight to reach the forest floor. All of this is great for the growth of plants that deer and elk love. Some fires scorch the ground so that grasses can no longer grow, but most forests see green growth after the first fall rain. Readily available grasses and shrubs help does and cows beef up before winter, which in turn gives them more nutrients for milk production. It can take a few years. Elk tend to be slower than deer to recolonize an area, but that increased reproductive potential means more deer and elk on the landscape. It doesn't happen after every fire, but a lot of fires see an increase in game populations. Oddly enough, invasive plant species pose the most serious threat to a landscape following a fire. Fire creates a kind of survival of the fittest environment amongst plants, and invasives like cheatgrass can quickly move in after fires and replace what was once high-quality forage for wildlife. These invasive plants aren't great to eat, and they can keep native trees and shrubs from growing along rivers, which increases the temperature of the water and hurts fish like salmon and steelhead. Game and fish departments combat these threats by working with private landowners to reseed properties with native plants. Last year, for example, Oregon Fish and Wildlife used helicopters to drop about 6,000 pounds of native grass seeds along 24 miles of riparian area. One last note. If you spy an animal wandering through a burned-out area, don't assume it's been orphaned by fire. It's probably doing just fine, and trying to feed it, or quote-unquote save it, will almost certainly do more harm than good. Wild animals are better at escaping a wildfire than most people. If you want to help, consider donating time or money to organizations working to restore habitat. The deer and elk will appreciate newly seeded grasses, far more than the bucket of corn you leave out in your backyard. To make sure you learned something today, what is the difference between venom and poison? We've covered this before. Venom 
is delivered. Poison is consumed. So, if you're ever at a dinner party, someone eats something and says, I've been poisoned. They're right, but you can still actually say, you know, bro, you did that to yourself. Whereas, if you took a fork and dipped it in poison, then stabbed that person, you could say to the bro that on the plate, it was poison. You envenomed the fork by placing the poison on the fork. The act of stabbing that person is what turned that poison into venom. Think of that. That's all I got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you come across a downed tree in the middle of your hunting road this fall, you're going to wish you had a clean, quiet, powerful steel chainsaw with you. Go to www.steeldealers.com to find a knowledgeable steel dealer near you. You'll thank me. And as always, don't forget to tell me what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.